For February 12th, 2024, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 815. Meep, meep. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet, never happier than when we are pursuing headlong our dreams, when we are, you know, hungry and, uh, and, you know, trying to, to get satisfaction for the deep hunger, uh, within us, for, uh, the deep hunger that uh, drives us to uh, all of our crazy, elaborate schemes. I'm uh, I'm Matt Rather. I'm with you here, and we have some rules on the overthinking a podcast here. And that's uh, the rule number one is that Matt Rather cannot harm Pete Fenzel except by going not first in the alphabet. <laughs> We welcome instead overthinker Ben Adams, who we don't get to talk to nearly enough. Ben, it's a pleasure to have you as usual. It's a pleasure to be on, Matt. It's uh, it's uh, great to yeah, great to great to podcast with you. Very excited to get into our material today. We also have uh, second in the alphabet, but still first in my heart. Remember when I used to say that every week, Pete? Did that make you feel weird at all? I don't know. It's Pete Fenzel. It's not in the top ten of things that you say that make me feel weird, Matt. Which is totally, <laughs> which is totally fine. I'm totally okay with it. And if I if I did feel weird, I could just paint a hole on the wall and escape therewith. So, <laughs> and uh, in in our uh, in our Acme chest of uh, of contraptions and uh, podcasting devices, uh, all four of us, none none more so than Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. How are you? You. You're, you're teaming up to malfunction spectacularly halfway through the show. Where oh, that happened before, by the way. That's usually so. my job. Sorry, sorry, Mark. I didn't mean to didn't mean to throw you under the bus there. That that came out of the painting and flattened me, uh, flattened me here on the road. Well, Ben, when it was uh, when it was clear that you could join us, you suggested a topic that seemed uh, that seemed you know very interesting and something we were excited to excited to dig into. Why don't you tee up for us the? Uh, why don't you uh, you know uh, get out the uh, get out the contraption that we're working with and and read the instructions. Uh, uh, of this, uh, you know, of this uh, podcast catching device that we've that we've assembled here together. I will I will do my best to paint an elaborate uh, picture of a tunnel on the on the wall of a cliff, uh, so that you run uh, headlong into it, believing it to be uh, the actual road that continues into the wall. Uh, so yeah, so I saw this article in the Wrap from just a couple days ago about the kind of breaking the news that the coyote versus acme movie was essentially dead uh so for for background this was a warner brothers movie that was announced in november that it was going to be basically written off not released kind of thrown in the hole never to be seen so that warner brothers could claim the write-off on their taxes there was kind of a social media uproar lots of people because what was interesting about this was it was very late in the game. There was apparently a, a version of the movie that was good enough, not just to be shown to like test audiences, but to be shown to like friends and families of the filmmakers. So like a, a very finished product of the movie. Uh, so very late in the game to be deciding not to release it. So there was kind of a, a save our movie campaign uh, and Warner Brothers agreed to let the producers of the movie shop it around, uh, but at least according to the rap, uh, that has not been successful kind of sounds like warner torpedoed it and we can get into that uh but in any case it sounds like this movie is all but dead which made me very sad because as both a lawyer and a lifetime lover of wiley coyote this movie was like kind of made in a lab to to please my specific interests what do we know about the (laughs) the the plot of the movie that makes it particularly uh particularly exciting to you being a lawyer so it's so the Coyote versus Acme is apparently like a you know, fictional caption of a case, and so apparently Wiley Coyote is somehow involved in a lawsuit against the Acme Corporation for all the defective equipment he's bought over the years, with uh, Will Forte apparently starring as his lawyer. Uh, so I, you know, anytime we can get some some courtroom drama up on the screen, I'm I'm excited. Probably <laughs> Will Forte, you can't handle the truth. Meet me. <laughs> yeah, it's probably a, a rich body of civil law that that pertains to you know the the malfunctioning of of bad equipment and whatnot. Well, 
Well, well there is it, indeed. I mean, there's you know, products liability is is a, is a huge field. No, uh, <laughs> no doubt. I'm uh, I'm I'm always told. I'm always sent postcards saying that I'm in a. Uh, that I'm in a uh, uh, <laughs> class for for something <laughs> that that will give me two dollars because you know I don't know some some uh, thing malfunctioned in a way that it 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 was it was supposed to uh, it was supposed to work um, yeah so uh, Coyote Coyote versus Acme uh, directed by uh, Darling OTI Darling director Dave Green uh, who directed Out of the Shadow Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Out of the Shadows the uh the good Megan Fox Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie and um other uh, Earth to Echo uh as well and uh he he was on his uh he, like when it came out in in November he was on his Instagram um and wrote a like a just a pretty good uh you know, a pretty good, like, uh, naked came I into the world and naked am I going thither, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, kind of, kind of, <laughs> you know, uh, the Lord here being David Zasloff, I guess, uh, the, the, the Lord that giveth was the regime that, that preceded the, uh, discover is a, the discovery of, uh, the discovery of Warner Brothers, um, and, uh, the the Lord that taketh away is is David uh, David Zasloff. Um, but he he wrote that uh, you know that he he wrote a little Apple Notes screenshot about the coyote's resilience and saying that he was inspired by the coyote and taking you know taking this bad news and professional setback with uh you know trying to to take it in the the spirit that the coyote the coyote would want, which is that you just uh you know dust get get yourself off you know let the let the cartoon smoke clear from around. You your head dust yourself off and get on with your next uh next elaborate scheme to catch the elusive roadrunner of uh you know of a of a hit film as a as a director um pete i don't know did you were you aware of this story what did you think of it when it, when oh, yeah. it came across no. your transom so this this story is pretty interesting it's interesting in one respect as an extension of the i guess what i would call the batgirl story yeah this is how I would frame it, because that's not just in terms of what's happening, but in terms of, of the narrativization, the sort of tale that goes along with it, which is the idea that Warner Brothers – let me see if I can some sort of attach to this narrative a little bit. Not necessarily what has happened, but what we've all been saying. Not that the two have a conflict, but that there's a lot of things that are happening. But that Warner Brothers specifically, because it's a large, diversified company that – just does a lot of things has had a whole lot of projects and and in particular i'll add this particular layer during the period of relatively low interest rates and high investment into streaming that accompanied the pandemic uh let me say relatively low extremely low interest rates uh which had been continuing for a while before the pandemic and then into the pandemic with the big investment in streaming there and also with the sort of general you know, change in generations that was going on. There was a lot of uh, optimism that seemed to emerge after the fact for projects that were being worked on by Warner Brothers that had, you know, uh, creativity, representation. They were going to be different. They were going to be new. They were going to be interesting. And they were all killed by this man, David Zaslav, who has emerged from hell in order to drive a flaming spear. <laughs> and he, has, he, has, he has secured the Spear of Longinus uh, from Human Instrumentality Project, uh, which is a callback to a previous episode of our podcast, and has driven it through the side of of the of future generations by uh, by by basically doing this huge debt reduction program that involves throwing away a bunch of half made projects because the additional cost of making them is going to instead go to, to what debt reduction uh, and then also like uh, even projects that are entirely done but he, but even before that like ideas that should have been made thoughts that should have made and the and the, I think part of the narrative is that boring safe stupid things are going to be saved whereas fun interesting edgy things that are progressive are going to be destroyed because you know david zasloff is evil which he very well might be uh, but i'm sure this podcast will resolve that question by the time we have finished recording some hour and a half from now uh, well, we're in order of claims, you can very clearly state that david zasloff is um let's call it like a very motivated businessman who has built his fortune on cheap reality tv Right. Okay. Like I that's, actually that's, about him. I didn't not catch that part of it. I've not heard of him as a like TV person. So that's interesting. For oh, me. yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, he. well, OK, so he, he's a TV person by the way of trade. Yeah. Um, and you know, he built his fortune, you know, leading um, the, the Discovery Group or whatever. I got, you know, the set of cable television uh, channels like the TLC Discovery uh-huh. so on and so forth. Right. Uh, home uh, HGTV. I could list a bunch of other acronyms. But like, yeah, as I said, 
cheap reality uh, shows that make a lot of money, um, not particularly prestigious. Now, in the background, um, David Zaslav, uh, this, I'm, I'm getting a lot of this, by the way, from uh, November uh, 2023 New York Times Magazine article, which we'll link in the show notes. Um, he fancies himself as a real movie buff. This is one of the really interesting things about this whole story and this saga. And he was, you know, he wanted Warner Brothers to become like a Hollywood mogul. Right. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and to kind of take his place amongst like, you know, the 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 elite of the entertainment business. Right. You know, I'm making movies like, you know, film with a capital F. Yeah. Um, but apparently for whatever reason, that did not include uh, Coyote versus Acme and Van Girl for that matter. So, so, yeah. So like another. So that's so one of the stories. Right. Is that David Zaslav is a bean counter or like an investment guy or like a cynical profiteer, which he very well might be. Uh, who has come in to destroy and strip the remaining creativity from this sort of giant husk. Another way of telling the story would be that that David Zaslav is the new gorilla in town who is going to uh, – not. I guess – I don't know if it was the gorillas who did this. I think gorillas do this too, but chimpanzees definitely do it, right, where it's like – or baboons, where they take over the group and then they kill all the babies that aren't their babies, Right. Like animals are so much worse than humans, by the way, in so many ways. But no, like the, that the that the the new primate comes in. Right. And they and they murder all of the babies from the previous uh, primate, the previous male primate that was like dominating this particular group. Um, and uh, and the idea that like, well, yeah, you know, your project might have been good, but it's not his project. Like when I, I remember reading, oh, yeah, he's a film buff and thinking like, well, yeah, he's cutting all the projects he he is didn't get to make in order to free up money for the projects that he wants to make. Because, you know, that's kind of what happens when leadership changes in organizations. That was your pet project. This is my pet project. Uh, and uh, and your pet project has to go and my pet project has to stay. Uh, but that was maybe that was only me who thought that that might be what was going on. But I guess I'm, I'm just speculating because there's so many different stories you can spin well no it does it does this. like part part of the deal with the acquisition of like and i i follow entertainment press because i i like to pretend it still has something to do with me but the the like um part of the acquisition of uh dis, of um Warner's from AT&T its previous corporate home right now and now discovery is its second corporate home was the assumption of a, like a, a lot of debt. There was a lot of debt that was, that was part of this deal. And so I think that like both things are true, Pete, right? It's cause the, the, uh, you know, he's, he's really got this immense debt servicing burden and, um, you know, is like scrounging for change in the couch. But the, the question of which cushions you look under, I think is 100%, uh, governed by the, the idea that like stuff from the old regime is, uh, you know, it is on the chopping block and stuff from the new regime is going to be, um, you know, is going to be privileged. Like they're, they, they have put out stuff. They put out movies like, like, uh, DC superhero movies kind of with a shrug. Uh, some of them because they are not the I think like the Aquaman movie, for example, because they're not part of the new, you know, DC cinematic universe thing that they are um, that they're trying to to establish with James Gunn leading it, playing the Kevin Feige role in, in you know, controlling the whole the whole universe. So, I, you know, I think there is there's a whole bunch of. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff and a whole bunch of pieces of this, including the, you know, the Max streaming service, uh, notably called by Christopher Nolan, the worst streaming service. You'll recall that we took, <laughs> yeah. we, we took issue with that. That was the same thing, like making HBO just a tile on the, you know, on the, the Shark Week streaming service was, uh, another move by this same, sort of chief executive to to sort of consolidate uh to consolidate his his kingdom um and that's you know and that that's like uh it 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 really i don't know it's it sort of tarnished the reputation of of Warner Brothers which had a lot of really good relationships with um uh with a lot of uh a lot of talent like like Christopher Nolan and was seen as a very filmmaker friendly place to you know to see a movie yeah i'm i i was interested pete i was wondering if you would uh, to sorry to make a movie i was in, i was wondering pete if you would um sort of glom onto the narrative aspect of this because i think it's very interesting how this enters how this kind of thing enters the conversation um in like po- in twitter you know like in popular imagination in people's kind of own projections and own kind of like understanding of of sort of what 
uh, what is going on. I, one, one like lens you could apply to it is that like, we don't look at films as assets. You know, we don't look at them as like items on a balance sheet as, as, you know, a certain amount of expenditure, a certain amount of, a certain amount of income, though, though hopefully no income. Uh, studios are, are, uh, notoriously stingy at how, uh, you know, and creative in how they account, uh, for the profits that, that movies make. I think like something, there was a, a joke that like the Empire Strikes Back only finally recouped in like 2014 or something like that, that, uh, you know, they are so, uh, so, um, loath to make uh to make any kind of profit on on films um especially if there are like profit participants in the you know who who have points in the back end of a of a film but the uh you know that that like on for studios these things are you know the 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 rap is always about you know a bunch of uh a bunch of you know storytellers who have a passion for like you know uh, the 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 television is just the the modern campfire around which we gather for warmth and to tell the stories to to forge in the smithy of our soul the uncreated conscience of our race and you know it, that makes you want to gag yeah I'm with you because really it's not that it's you know it's it's a certain amount of expenditure it's a certain uh, a certain amount of profit there there it, it's a business and it's in the business of manufacturing and selling uh these you know popular these popular entertainments i think that that there's something in in that disjunction that we sort of slam up against and it leads to a a view where it's like oh the evil the evil bean counters you know are taking away our joy right are are just like uh raining on raining on our parade or just like we we have love for these things we you know i don't know what we we go to comic con or whatever right like we we cosplay as the roadrunner we, and, we record uh, podcasts about movies in our spare time <laughs> right for for literally dozens for of people dozens of years for yeah, for thousands of teeming fans Hundreds of thousands of we could, Yeah, we could fill what is it, Hall H at Comic Con? Is that the is that the big one? We could, you know, screaming, overthinking, overthinking yeah. and uh, just screaming you know. like like the pod people from Revenge of the Bodges. Ah just constantly <laughs> nonstop a drone <laughs> of identifying then, the uh, foreign element. Yes. And, and then these evil, you know, these evil people breaking, you know, breaking in coming like the, like the, the, the evil monsters, uh, the evil sensitive hearing monsters in, uh, a quiet place pre the a quiet place prequel that was just advertised during the Super Bowl that you know who kind of like jump spider like into our universe and and devour all of our joy devour uh, our fun licking their lips uh, with satisfaction as as though as though they were a coyote who had caught the Roan Runner and had <laughs> uh you know had actually uh, figured out what to what to do with it um yeah and that that like the way the way that it's narrativized I th- I think is an is an interesting thing and the part that we kind of choose to play where we choose to kind of cast ourselves you know in this in this kind of set of phenomena is uh is an interesting thing to observe yeah i have a weird perspective just because i did like discovery plus more than hbo (laughs) 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 it's like dude watch road trip with g garvin it's great watch houses with history it's great (laughs) like watch like (laughs) where are my grocery games yeah, bring, dude, Tournament of Champions, me. man, it's coming back. Season five. I think it's season five. It's hard to tell them apart. They all kind of run together. I've watched so many episodes of Guy Fieri. If it's, would you feel better or worse about this if instead of David Zaslav being in charge of it, when they merge Discovery with Warner Brothers, they literally put Guy Fieri in charge of the whole thing? Would you feel better or worse about Guy Fieri wouldn't cancel the Coyote and Road. No, absolutely not. No, he wouldn't. I can't. I have to. I mean, in the way that I project onto him things that are certainly not true about him, I have to believe that that he would be he would be Ben. You're you're not on this podcast a lot. How can you tell whether someone is evil when you're only hearing about them like third hand about complex financial <laughs> transactions they're involved in? Like, how do you know whether somebody is bad? Um, like, how do you know if the coyote? <laughs> I mean, is the, I, let me ask you this: Is the coyote bad? That's my question. Is the coyote wait, evil? Wait. I mean, so I, I don't think so, right? Because the coyote <laughs> is like you know basically the scorpion from the Scorpion and the Frog, right? It's just in his nature to get chase the Roadrunner, like right, that's what right. he does. And he's hungry. He's skinny. He just wants something to eat. Okay, uh, okay. But, Whereas David uh, Zaslav is gigantic. Uh, 
and uh, and, and ought to be satisfied with the many the many quick and colorful birds he has already devoured heretofore. Many of them cooked by the aforementioned Fieri, perhaps with a delightful aioli or donkey sauce. No, he, <laughs> I think he's the one selling the defective products to to wily e. coyote right like so he's, he's the one, like okay funneling the yes but I, I i've been following like the twitter narrative and i do think like this particular story is very easy to to narrativize in a way that is makes it more evil than your typical like profit loss transaction right because like nobody blinks twice if it's a you know non-art piece that you know, I, I don't know if, if Apple works on a product and, you know, spends $80 million developing it and then says, you know what, this isn't going to work. Consumers don't like it. We're just going to write it off. Like nobody really thinks twice about that. Right. So I think it's on the one hand, it's it's different because it's a supposedly finished movie. So it feels like there's like this piece of art out here that you could watch. We're just not going to let you watch. So in the same way, it'd be very different if the movie had just been like canceled mid development. Sure. You know, so that they had some some of the movie in the can, but hadn't done it all. And he comes in and says, "You know what? We're not going to spend any more money on that." It like, feels I think people really kind of understand that. Yeah, let me just it jump does. in a quick yeah, example this, of like imagine yeah. if like you wrote an amazing song and you played it for an A and R person at or a rec- recording label, and they said, "You know what? This is great." Um, here's 20 bucks of your time, and you know what? You can never play that song again. The world will never get to hear that song. And everybody's reaction, rightly so, would be, that is crazy. That makes absolutely no sense. Now, uh, to compare like a movie to a motion picture is not quite nearly, is, is not apples to apples at all. Um, but I think emotionally, we're having a similar reaction along those lines. And the, so I think the, the other part that, of this oh, is, I say the other part of this is the tax write-off seems inherently shady, even though it's really not like when you when you break it down. But it's something that your average person has never done. Certainly not forty million dollars worth, and so it just seems like a double scam, right? It seems like it is. We have this cool piece of art. You can't see it, and we get forty million dollars, which is not quite accurate. But that's what it feels from the government is is basically what people hear is that you know the taxpayers out forty million bucks, and so you know, just so we can't see this movie. I mean, that's, well, yeah, that's interesting. It's funny because like the, the treasury doesn't write them a check for $40 million. It's just that their, their tax liability is reduced by, by $40 million. Right. Like it's not, you know, well, I guess, I guess if you dip enough into the black, you do, you get a refund. Um, but the, uh, but the, yeah, I mean, there, there is something interesting in the, like the, the world, the, about the sense of fair play that, go, that goes to this, right? Because like you, you actually don't know if a movie's any good until it's done, right? The way, the way you don't know if, I don't know, like, uh, until it's, it's finally, finally completed until the, like, the unless last... it's a superhero movie starring a woman, then you know immediately whether it's good, right? Cause then, cause they already start talking about it a year before it comes out and everyone's all mad. Like they, they have to be psychic, right? Sorry, continue. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Like, is, is it, uh, yeah, it's, they, they, they must be psychic. I don't know. Is the world ready for a uh, for a female actor? Um, the uh, <laughs> <laughs> David Zuckoff is it? Uh, the spear of Longinus stabbing it into the side of creativity of Bat of Batgirl. And you'd think that the the uh, bat suit would be armored. So, so much of it, so much of the frontispiece of that bat suit looked so molded, so <laughs> rigidly molded that uh, you'd think it would it would resist the spear of Longinus. But that's. Uh, uh, that's another story for another day. But that, that like, uh, you kind of have to like let it, let the people have it, like let the people decide. There's something almost anti-democratic about, you know, deciding the movie is bad and not like releasing the movie into the marketplace. Uh, and, and then letting the, the, the letting the public decide that the, that the movie is bad, right? Like that's, that's and, our, and to our make it even right. worse, like part of the narrative here is that the studio executives hadn't even seen the movie. Yeah, I don't know about that. I it. mean, like, there's a lot of there's a lot of like uh, video files being emailed around and like whatever, or on their on their whatever their uh, private screening system is. Like the the idea that like someone didn't show up at a screening room and watch a thing. I'm not I'm not sure 
what to uh, what to make of that. But that, yeah, man, like they didn't they didn't even see it, and they're they're not letting us they're not letting us see it. It's you know it's kind of like um, I don't know. It's it's I'm trying to think of like what the what the aspects of this are as kind of a psychological enactment, like where where the aspects of projection are. It's almost like your your older brother has like denied you something, has said has like taken something uh, that that you can't have. Like oh, you want this you want this ice cream bar? I I I just bought. Oh oh yeah, Pete. I bought you an ice cream bar. Do you want this ice cream bar? I just bought it for you. You want this ice cream bar? You want this ice cream bar? No, I threw it on the ground. I stepped on your ice cream bar. I stepped on your ice cream bar from my from my penthouse <laughs> overlooking Burbank on the Warner Brothers studio lot. Ah, you'll never eat your ice cream bar. Did you like it? How foolish did you feel for your ice cream bar? And there's something like there's something you know in that like that relationship where you kind of cast yourself in that in that that victim that victim role uh, you know along the lines of like well you know they should they should give us our ice cream bar they should let us decide if the ice cream tastes like crap or not um but the the i mean i'm not sure well i'm not sure what else will ring out of the 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 legal drama but we we uh we, we oh sorry well, Pete, do, do let, let me let me let me just put another out? idea out there let another idea out there because Pete, i got an, i have another ice cream bar for you another <laughs> ice cream bar right here. i oh, don't know it's on the ground so another possible dynamic here there is of course the strangeness of having something to show and not being allowed to show it to people, which is a very weird and foreign sort of experience for a lot of folks these days, because so much of what you do and what happens to you is subject to the idea that it will be shown to everybody. So there's this sort of idea already in place that, you know, you're, you live in the Panopticon, everybody is seeing all the stuff that you're doing. And you are going to be trying to show people the stuff that you are doing and sort of curate and show them the coolest stuff that you've been doing. And that this extends beyond it being strictly a commercial activity to being a real social ritual for a lot of people. And the idea that somebody could rise within the not necessarily within we have to kind of get away from the notion that that uh that economies are kind of discrete things right that like uh that there that there could be different ways in which uh uh the the exchange of value is taking place in different media in different places uh but but the idea that you could rise to the point of being in or working on a movie for Warner Brothers which which you have to say you have to be one of the better showers of things uh, you know, in, in various respects, which is something that everybody is doing for social reasons, and then to be not permitted to show. Like, it's almost like you go on a vacation, right? You go on the nicest vacation you ever could afford to go on. It's a very special vacation. Mm. And you want to share pictures of yourself on the beach because it's like, I've tried, I've worked really hard in my life and I've gone through a lot of bad times and good times. And, and, and we all have this choreography where we all have to show who we are to everybody. And, and I just, I have this one special moment and it has real social significance. If I share this moment with everybody else and David Zaslav shows up out of the waves, uh, wielding the stolen trident from Aquaman two and just thrusts it into you and pins you into the beach and says, (laughs) no, no, you cannot share it. You cannot show it. You know, your showing is not yours. Your showing is mine. You know, your showing has become my showing. And while I think the uh, the circumspect respect, yeah, the circumspect attitude of of Mr. Green uh, with this is from someone who has lived in the reality of doing this as a profession, which is not necessarily doing it as your own personal Instagram. But I think for a lot of people. This idea of like, and even for a lot of artists who never really expect to make a lot of money from their work, even if they are operating for money a lot of the time, right? It's like, well, at least you're not even giving me the exposure, right? Like you're not even letting me put it out there and get no likes, right? Like you're not even letting me do that. Uh, and, and it's, and it feels like a crime against self-expression, even though it's, it's an IP, it's like a corporate IP thing. Uh, and, and a big project that involves a whole lot of people, uh, it, it feels like a, a, a crime against other people, say, you know, other people who would want to show things that they're proud of. Well, Pete, this, this um, it, like, it really gets into something that, you know, we talked, we talked, we didn't really talk about on our strike uh, episode, our entertainment strike episode, but that like sort of affects people's feelings about the strikes, which is that who is the kind of moral owner 
of the movie, you know, yeah. right? Like you spend so much time working on your beach body, right? Like you, you spend so much time, like, you know, cutting, cutting calories, like eating in caloric deficit and doing those like really like slow eccentrics to like, you know, maximum hypertrophy, get that V taper in your back. You know, you were rowing, you were just rowing nonstop, rowing and rowing. And you liked yeah. those pictures. You let, you know, and then David Zaslav tackled you and deleted deleted them from your phone but like yes. the, the picture Hands is on your phone the sand and had, <laughs> had the gall to have an orchestra play but it was a Hans Zimmer orchestra so it was just going wah 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 it was very off-putting it's not into it and then he went to the guy in the cart pushing his little cart with the dinghy bell along the the thing and bought you an ice cream bar Pete he bought you an ice cream <laughs> bar do you know what he did then but the you know I, I I think it's interesting like you bring up you know that we share on social media I think the technology of having a little movie camera actually having having a a like cinema camera that is superior to uh, that is superior to like a century's worth of uh, motion picture cameras that that made you know uh professional theatrical motion pictures right like in your pocket and being able to kind of like to shoot and share like the idea that like you know someone must have this movie on their phone somewhere and it can't come out you know like there's there's something that just doesn't rhyme uh Mm -hmm. that like about that there's something that that just sort of offends against the sense of how we think about the the sort of the the ownership or or proliferation proliferation of images crossed with right the idea that the the creative talents and not necessarily the financiers uh, are the the sort of moral owners of uh, of a work of art um, rather than you know rather than being uh, uh, higher guns who make work product that is owned by that is owned by a movie studio uh, I mean Ben as a real life lawyer you must come into situations like this I know you're not really an IP lawyer but like there must be situations like this all over the law where the kind of the actual the technical reality is at variance with uh, you know the kind of the the vulgar the uh, the the like the the common sense of what the moral reality ought to be no i mean of course like that's you know there, there's all sorts of you know strange situations in that's law what, that, that's why that's why y'all exist really Exactly. Yeah, that's, that 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 is tr- truly why why lawyers exist. I, I'm trying to think of a good example. There's, my, my I practice criminal law, so it's it's a little bit a much different situation. Sure. Uh, but I mean, it, it it's this it's the same thing as you know the, the kind of counterintuitive results sometimes of like, you know, it, it's not counterintuitive to us today, but like you know the the idea that you get a statement suppressed that a confession cannot be used in court. It's very counterintuitive that we're going to this truth seeking function of a court is going to say we're not going to use this true piece of information for some extraneous extraneous reasons. Uh, You know, this is not quite the same, but there's this kind of counterintuitive idea that all of these people work really hard. And really, it's just someone who who didn't even do the coordination work. Right. Because even if, if David Zaslav had been the original producer, at the very least, you could say that that's like the labor of of coordination, right? You know, somebody has to pull all the strands together and get and connect the money to the people with cameras, to the people who know how to animate, to, you know, the people who are going to voice the different cartoon characters. That wasn't even David Zaslav. That was some other guy who then, you know, got replaced by David Zaslav. And so there's something that, that very much offends the sensibilities because it highlights that this is just pure capital. Right. This is in a labor versus capital dispute. This is just capital gets to win at the end. Mm-hmm. Is there is there a uh, a connection maybe to the to the uh, sort of existential uh, conflict between the the coyote and the road runner, right? Like the the sort of the road runner uh, views himself as a subject, and the the coyote views him as meat uh, or or something else. What what I've been thinking. What I've been thinking about is this whole situation kind of since November is is kind of like, you know, where the coyote runs off the edge of the cliff and then it takes a couple beats and looking down before the coyote actually falls. That apparently that's the situation that this movie was in. Right. You know, November, it was it had run off the cliff already. And hopefully we got hopefully they were going to find ground and nope, it's just going to fall and, you know, 
too bad for the coyote. It's one of my favorite things about it's one of my favorite things about cartoons that they can um, they create a, a separate set of rules. Right, you can continue walking off the edge of the cliff as long as you don't look down. Right, and your belief that you can continue walking as opposed to like the laws of physics. Right, like your belief uh, can keep you up, can keep you um, uh, elevated. But the second that you look down, the second that that you realize that you're coming off the uh, uh, the edge of the cliff, that's when that's when you do it. And and then like this is not so true of the coyote because the you know it is in the nature of the coyote to fall. But if it were like Mickey Mouse or something like that to to go to a different studio, you know, um, he could like scramble back somehow, right? Like enough, he could like right. row paddle through the air. Uh, and you know, we know air doesn't work like that, but, um, but it's, it's the, I think Walt Disney called it like impossible possibilities. And the, the idea that it's a rules bound universe, even though, uh, there are different rules than the, the rules that we, um, uh, observe in like the physical universe gives it i i mean makes makes our credulity makes our like being willing to invest in it uh you know seems to kind of re- respect our suspension of disbelief um in a way that like we trade it for we trade it for delight and we don't kind of get made a fool of the way that that the the coyote does because the coyotes all is always uh kind of misprizing um the the you know hoped for or purported versus actual uh universe that he i mean it's it's sort of his existential position that he like just really doesn't understand the nature of the universe that he finds himself in. Right. Yeah. Can I, um, make a, uh, let me throw some idea out here. Is Roadrunner and Coyote, is this avant-garde? Is there something like kind of like, I don't know, high concept is quite the right word for it. That was like surprising, um, for even like, you know, us watching in 2023, and perhaps even more surprising, considering that this came out in 1949, right, 74 years ago. Um, are you guys picking up what I'm putting down here? Right? Is there something like particularly, dare I say, genius about the whole thing? Ahead of <laughs> I mean, time. This whole, is that this performance right? I mean, art one, we're witnessing? Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> it's existential. One, one must imagine the coyote happy. Yeah. Mm. So, so is the idea right? I mean, here? I, but I, oh, I think you're right. I do think you're right. I mean, there is something, it's very kind of high concept. And it's interesting because it, I think a lot of times you see criticism of older movies as being very slow by modern sensibilities. Mm. And it, you watch a Roadrunner Coyote cartoon and it's, it's a, it's a joke a minute, right? Cause it does set up scene joke punchline in about a minute. And so in a five minute, six minute cartoon, you've got four or five of those. Yeah. Uh, all connected only by the thinnest thread of plot, which is that the coyote wants the roadrunner. There's no like serialization or like running elaborate plot that the coyote has. It's just one scheme after another. Yeah. Pete, you're trying to get on there earlier. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm what I was kind of asking was, are we, are we concerned with, are we concerned with Coyote versus Acme, the movie that we didn't see? Or are we concerned with Coyote versus Acme, the performance art that we're currently witnessing? Is that what you're asking about, Mark? Where the the constant failures of this movie to get made are itself a uh, a an expression of the coyote, right? Of sort of like a, a coyote story in and of themselves. And in that case, like who is the coyote and who is the roadrunner? Uh, I mean, I was already right. neither. I was talking about just like you know the, the cartoon itself, right? <laughs> okay, gotcha. So, so is the cartoon itself avant-garde? We we haven't seen it. It sounds like it's at least. It seems no, like no, no, like, like the, the source material. The source material. Yeah. Oh, yeah. is the actual Coyote cartoon avant-garde? Like the original yeah. one from the yeah, 40s? yeah, 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 yeah. The one that is seventy-four years old. Uh, I mean, avant-garde probably meant something different then. Maybe because it's French, it's fancy. <laughs> I don't know where was the where was it made? Pepe, was it made Pepe, in like New Jersey somewhere? Pepe like, Le Pew was avant garde, yeah. you know. He's, uh, uh, he's, uh, like that. that okay, you maybe, know. is it is it is it highbrow? Let me, let me just like paint the picture of one of the jokes from the first, the very first appearance of Roadrunner Coyote, which is so wonderfully titled "The Fast." Oh, sorry, just "Fast and Furious." Not the Fast and the Furious. Wait, what? The first fast. episode of Wiley Coyote is called Fast and Furious? Yes, Pete. Yes, it is. Isn't that mm-hmm. not delightful? This wow. is so, so ahead of its time, what I'm saying here, right? Okay. Yeah. So there's, like, in the middle, halfway through the episode, and, you know, the, the Coyote has failed at, at this point two or three times to catch the Roadrunner. His next idea is he is going to paint 
a road crossing in the road, and he's going to put up a sign that says school crossing, and he's going to dress himself up as a schoolgirl. And he prances through the crossing, and the roadrunner just plows through him, right? Just knocks him over, and then doubles back, and he holds up his own sign that says roadrunners can't read. Because he couldn't recognize <laughs> what the sign was. I saw that. I was like, holy crap. That is amazing. That is highbrow. That is genius. That's like, dare I say, avant-garde. But there's, it, I mean, what is the right word for, for this here? I mean, I think artistically in post-war, uh, post-war America, art had already kind of ta- taken this step. I think that this sort of thing was more, more common than, than, than we might suppose from our, our vantage point. I, you know, as far as I'm concerned, uh, self-referentiality was invented in the eighties by MTV. Right. And, uh, oh, n- yes, n- yes, never yes. existed. Uh-huh. Yeah. Never no, existed in no, art no. before then. But I, I, you know, I, I think that, that a lot of, a lot of cartoons are like really foreground their cartoonness really can, can like have a lot of fun with their constructedness because it's, uh, you know, because of the way that, that, um, people people were just already already wise uh you know there's there's like stories of like early cinema um early cinema like a train a, a shot of a train coming at the uh, at the camera um but causing havoc in movie theaters where people would would run away but i wonder if if some of that isn't overblown right like if if it may i don't know maybe happened once or maybe happened very early in in the history of cinema and then like people cottoned on uh very easily like i i think of something like you know roughly contemporaneous with the the wiley coyote cartoons that at least i looked at uh to prepare for though brief digression Apparently, WB Kids has like modern uh, Wiley e. Coyote and Roadrunner cartoons that are kind of 3D animated. Uh, have Ooh. any of you seen these things? They are uh, no, they no, are refuse. abominations. Sure, yeah, they are they are bad. And if you like them, you are bad. I, yeah, I had to, I turned a couple on in preps, and I had to switch away. It yeah. was it was deeply disturbing. It's, so, if I had to guess, by the way, let's just go on this digression. Like, do they tone down the slapstick uh, intense violence? I feel like that's the thing that they would do to make kind of like a cleaner, more sanitized uh, version of it for a modern audience. Well, I think yeah, like the more because there was there were various moral panics through the years, by the way, of like, oh, the children watch the cartoon violence and they themselves become violent because they don't understand that when you drop an anvil uh, from 400 feet onto somebody, it could actually kill them. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, I mean, I think that that like comics are going to really be the death of our teenagers who are going to actually turn into mutant turtles who practice japanese martial arts and that's uh you know that's that's a fate that we've seen befall uh all youth movements since since the 80s no just last week we watched a movie where tom cruise had a piano dropped on his head in real life the coyote has gone too far <laughs> like jumping your motorcycle off of a cliff to chase a very fast object is a very wily coyote move that's <laughs> true tom cruise has become wily coyote and he's always running is he is he the roadrunner or is he wily coyote or is the roadrunner can't be a real person? Is right? it dialectic? Is it dialectical? And Tom Cruise's right. Ethan Hunt is the synthesis of Coyote <laughs> and Roadrunner, who is now opposed by a new antithesis of the the malevolent AI. You know, right? And then right. Uh, then we're going to get like uh, eternally young robot Tom Cruise, I guess, as the new synthesis, which will be the star of all movies. <laughs> and all movies, all movies will be just the mechanical pumping of Tom Cruise, robot Tom Cruise's limbs as he runs <laughs> in that that you know sprinter fashion like high knees right like uh t1000 arms swinging and this will go back to the early cinema of of like edward moybridge who uh did the like the running man or the athletes you know high jumping uh and all that stuff that that uh you know forms a lot of the basis of like early screen practice and that's how all of cinema comes uh comes around in a circle and it's it's avant-garde. Anyway, sorry. I, I wanted to say that like a lot of the fifties Chuck Jones uh cartoons are are pretty self-referential, are pretty hip to uh, you know, the idea of of the kind of like uh foregrounding the constructedness and artificiality of cartoons. Like I'd point you to 
to duck amok. I think that that Daffy Duck is probably a better um, avatar for the kind of anxiety that that this induces than the you know than the Roadrunner and Coyote. But like in something in something like the you know the the real unreality of the the painted landscape. Like sometimes the painted landscape is. Um, how to even put it operational right like a like a cartoon uh sometimes it's a world um and sometimes the painted landscape is is you know just a backdrop that you uh that you pass through it, it the those these cartoons were really i mean we're really into that so so mark i think that like i think you're right to point it out but i think it was a, a, a i won't say common but i think it was a not uncommon feature of a lot of the uh, a lot of the the cartoons um, of of this kind, you know, and and like sure, yeah. goes goes along the lines with like I don't know, kids pick up on stuff like a lot a lot quicker, I think, than than sometimes uh, sometimes our conception of their their you know limitations in entertainment gives them gives them credit for. Um, but that yeah that uh that thing L- let me let me throw another question kind of into our into our bubbling soup of questions let me or let me let me put a, another question bird seed bowl out on the the road while i i stand above with my discursive anvil um who who's the hero of the of the coyote roadrunner cartoons right like do you feel bad for the coyote do you want the coyote to catch the roadrunner do you feel bad when he doesn't catch the roadrunner like do you feel bad when he slams into the the walls um you know i don't know ben i feel like i should give you the first shot at this because you brought these uh (laughs) you you brought this topic to the to the table so so you can dine on our dish of roadrunner here like what what who who even who even is the good guy of these things i mean it's weird because in the kind of campbellian sense it's probably coyote is the, the hero of this he's the protagonist of the story right he's the one who is acting and the Roadrunner is always kind of just running around, right? It's just kind of living his life, and the Coyote is the one who's who's hatching the schemes. Mm. But I always root—I mean, I was always rooting for the Roadrunner. I was always Team Roadrunner. But I, it makes me kind of think of nature documentaries, where you'll see, you know, a, a lion chasing a gazelle or a bird chasing a you know rodent or something like that. And you know, depending on how they frame it. Sure. You'll kind of root for different animals. And I think that's kind of what's going on here. Cause I honestly, the, the roadrunner cartoons have a little bit of nature documentary in them. They all start with like a fake Latin name for the roadrunner and the, the coyote, uh, you know, highlighting their, their animalness. And so it's, it's even though that you're kind of rooting for the, the roadrunner, it's hard to think of the Wiley coyote as a villain because he's, he's a predator. Coyotes eat, animals that's what they do otherwise he starves to death so what else is he gonna do right if you did it if it was a if it was a like an adopt a coyote uh you know shelter coyote like video right you'd feel completely different about it would wouldn't you like if if you know there was a hung you know like every every nine seconds a coyote dies because it doesn't get enough roadrunners to eat i will remember you that like that you feel completely differently given the given the different framing i think that you're right about the the kind of the nature documentary um aspect of it out out to the table uh who else feels bad for the who else feels bad for the poor coyote or who else feels good for the roadrunner or bad for the coyote pete what do you think well it's interesting because the because the coyote and the roadrunner have if whenever whenever the moral whatever the moral taxonomy of who the good guy and the bad guy, so to speak, are in a story uh, fails, I tend to look at the pro wrestling side. So the pro wrestling model of who is the heel and who is the face, right? The heel being the character that the audience is supposed to boo and the face being the character that the audience is supposed to cheer for, which is different from the character with more heat that the audience is more into there. Are, there's very common in pro wrestling for the audience to boo someone, but to actually be really into them and, and to be very excited about them and for them to be a big draw. Right. Uh, and in that sense, this whole idea of like, well, they don't, if, if, if someone's not redeeming, I don't really connect with them. BS. That's not how people work. Right. Like, uh, like people will cheer for villains. We witness it all the time. Um, but the, dy- but so there's this sort of matrix of, you know, heat versus face heel, and in the Coyote Roadrunner 
um, the Coyote Runner metric, the, the Roadrunner is is pretty heelish because the Roadrunner gets by off of superior natural talent, right? So, like, the Roadrunner escapes, often not by being clever, uh, I suppose, although the Roadrunner does get across the idea of this sort of supreme knowledge, right, this sort of smiling Buddha uh, of, uh, of of oneness with the desert, where it knows things about the universe that are that the coyote can't possibly know. But but the Roadrunner is mostly just fast, right? And and uh, and whatever the coyote tries, that coyote fails. And we watch the coyote struggle. Uh, and that would, in a pro wrestling match, that would make most of the time the coyote the good guy mm. and the roadrunner the bad guy. It would make the coyote the the heel and the roadrunner the face. Now, one thing that works in favor of the roadrunner being the face is that the coyote is 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 a uh, dare I say it coyote ugly, right? The uh, coyote is uh. ugly, and the roadrunner looks good. The roadrunner has bright colors. The roadrunner has clean lines. The coyote is mangy and has kind of weird facial expressions and the eyes. Yeah, it does it for the coyote. Yeah. And so if you're thinking about somebody like, say, Mick Foley, you know, even even when Mick Foley was like (laughs) acting in the context of being a good guy wrestler, he doesn't quite come across as a baby face. I mean, it's baby face for a reason, because he's, you know, Cactus Jack. He's got that rough face. He's got the missing teeth. He's got the big scraggly beard. He's got the, you know, the cut off flannel shirt. So like. There's an element of of griminess that supports someone not being the like romantic lead of the story, so to speak, right? With a capital R. You're not Roland and the Paladins, right? Uh, but Roadrunner is a little bit more like that. So in that dimension, the Roadrunner is kind of more the face. And, and then, and the, but then also there's this whole idea that the coyote um, is trying to trick the Roadrunner. So that's maybe that's the part of the cartoons that is the toughest. And I would be surprised, I wouldn't be surprised if that's part of the reason why the newer ones aren't really working is like, what are the rules that the coyote is trying to break because the way the big way that the coyote becomes a villain is by cheating. Uh, I've been dealing with this with my son recently where uh, actually a little, little aside, because he watches so many kids cartoons about races where, where they have to run a race. And the person who is really evil is the one who, who cheats and takes a shortcut, uh, even to the point once where I took a wrong turn while I was driving him to the park and I ended up taking the next turn. And I told him I took a shortcut and he lost his mind and cried <laughs> because you're not supposed to take shortcuts like only bad people take shortcuts. <laughs> Um, and it's like, no, I was speaking, I didn't say colloquially cause he doesn't know that word, but it's like, no, I just, I was trying to, I was trying to make myself feel better about missing the turn. Right. Um, but the idea that the coyote is trying to cheat by like bringing a rocket to a, a dog fight, bringing like, <laughs> you know, like to, that, that he's like the idea that the Acme corporation providing him with stuff. Like, is the Atme Corporation like weapons of borderline paper? mass destruction? <laughs> yeah. yeah, like the coyote isn't actually chasing the Roadrunner. Maybe that's the thing that makes the coyote the villain is that like the coyote is the coyote lazy. Is it the coyote? Would the coyote catch more prey if that coyote ran more and like Rube Goldberg and ordered out less? Right. Like, uh, is that part of what makes and the, and the coyote's like expectation that the latest thing that he bought is going to solve his problem. Uh, it might be part of what makes him not feel because I never was rooting for him. You know, I was celebrating his failure. He's kind of a clown, right? He fails. Yeah. And it's like, ha ha, he failed, right? You don't want him to actually get the Roadrunner. Um, but at the same time, you know, over time, when you talk about kind of like well, vulnerability, there's this idea of the coyote that isn't really 100% who the coyote is in the old cartoons, who's very sympathetic. Um, I don't know, Mark, what were you saying? Yeah, what, what makes the coyote sympathetic is that we're talking about this whole sense of, like, you know, fair play, right? And yes, you could say that the coyote is quote-unquote cheating because he's bringing a, a rocket to um, a, you know, a, 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 a an animal fight. Um, but the roadrunner also Mark, cheats. Mark, that's not, that's not fair, right? Like, uh, rockets don't kill roadrunners. Coyotes kill roadrunners. <laughs> or, 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 or don't. But, that's it. Yes. But like, no, but, David Zaslav kills them all. with the <laughs> yeah, that's, There you go. That's it. That's it. And, um, and rockets also don't kill roadrunners. Yeah, no, yeah. sure. <laughs> that's true. Yes. Okay, but so like, you know, we've been talking about the, the very famous, you know, example from these cartoons where, you know, the roadrunner, sorry, the coyote paints a, uh, a, a, a picture of the, of the road onto the side of the cliff and you know, tries to trick the roadrunner into just running, you know, slamming into it. Yes, the, the coyote's not playing fair, right? The roadrunner, in turn, also does not play fair because he, what does he do? Oh, he breaks the laws of physics. How is that fair? Right? 
<laughs> the guy's like, how is that fair? Yeah. That's not yeah, fair. It's, not fair. it's, it's, it's not absurd. Fair. Right. You know, like, and, and Pete, you were talking about, it's just like Buddha, like, you know, Zen understanding of the desert and things like that. that. That's not what's going on right there. That is just like cartoon absurdism happening. And like, you know, I, I don't feel angry about that. I just like, you know, I, I enjoy it. Right. And I enjoy the, the comeuppance that the coyote gets, you know, from trying to then like run into the own, the own wall that he paints and like finding he is unable to break the law laws of physics. Um, but it also does like prevent me from rooting for the roadrunner because like I'm not really sure under what terms uh, he's playing and what the sense of fair play actually is here. It's 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 complicated and that's what's the real appeal of this, right? There's no clear good guy or bad guy or the whole thing. I want to I want to go back to the Latin names that are put on the that are put on the 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 screen, right? Like uh, Ben pointed these out, and it's um it I I think there is. It it does a couple of things. One is it sort of imports a it imports like a scientific discourse where you have a um where you have a like uh uh an idea that like this is just kind of the the will of nature, right? Like or this is just the system of nature where it is in the nature of the the roadrunner to run and it is in the nature of the the coyote to to try to to try to eat and um you know that that we're we're watching we're watching a kind of like non-moral drama uh unfold but i think that that it's given lie to by the the fact the by the actual words that are in the things and the the like the roadrunners is some variation on like rapidus incredibus or something like that so uh and and the coyotes is some variation on like famishes vulgaris or vulgaris or something thing like that. So the the roadrunner is incredible and the coyote is vulgar, right? And uh so so I think we're in we're in a realm of something like virtue ethics here where uh it's sort of the 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 roadrunner is kind of uh is incredible is like uh, expresses an excellence of some kind of of road running of speed and of uh you know getting out of the way and i think like part of that excellence is that the roadrunner is cool you know the roadrunner is um seems like unperturbed uh by a lot of things like is like stepping sidestepping out of the way at the moment the um at the moment the the anvil is about to crash into the the ground without like getting fraught you know without getting super super anxious about it and without like you know i don't know like like uh writing writing um you know i don't know writing a lot of op-eds about how like cartoons are harming our youth like it just just slides out of the way meep meep and off uh off the roadrunner yeah, I mean, yeah saying meep meep to someone trying to kill you is like a really good way of flexing on them right <laughs> that's that is that is that is a very you know dominant move by the the roadrunner in a way that is hard to hard to replicate. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's. I think they're they're saying that to each other at the Super Bowl tonight. I think the uh, the opposing teams. You know, if you really want to, if you really want to, like, you know, draw someone into a false start or something like that, just look, just look up into your opposing, uh, your opposing player and be like, meet meep. And that'll uh, that'll make it happen. It's a it's a great point. Like, and so the 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 roadrunner is cool, and the coyote is vulgar. You know, the vulgar in the sense of the uh, the Latin vulgus, like of the common people, you know, uh, not just like not just tasteless in which is what the word has come to, to mean, come to kind of connote. But like um, the uh, the the, uh, the coyote is is common and like does not uh, express an excellence of coyoteness, you know, and does not, I mean, doesn't run fast. I mean, there, there is something, there is kind of something virtue ethic in the, like the idea that like trying to, trying to strive, right? Like trying to, uh, uh, do all this stuff that, that, um, you know, do, do all this elaborate Rube Goldberg stuff, trying to like work smarter, not harder, right? Expresses the coyote's lack of excellence in, in coyoteing. And, uh, and also, and also I think a, a related but distinct phenomenon is that the, the coyote's cupidity, right? Like the coyote's, um, 
uh, uh, you know, uh, subservience to his base drives, like the, the drive to eat, especially, um, d- d- makes him do things that are very, uh, uh, very, very uncool. Does that, does that jibe with what you, uh, what you feel about the, uh, the coyote and the roadrunner, Ben? I mean, it does, but now that you're like talking it through, what I'm, what I can't help but thinking about is, it's, you know, this cartoon is 1949, the 50s. And the common man who constructs a series of Rube Goldberging devices to gain an advantage over his enemies is a really good description of the allies in World War II, right? Versus the the fascistic, you know, ubermensch uh, roadrunner uh, who wins purely by by virtue of, of his natural superiority. Like the allies were just like the common man that like strung a bunch of stuff together. And then all of a sudden you have like radar and nuclear bombs. Uh, so I'm, I'm now on team coyote. I'm, I'm rooting for, uh, rooting for the common man. Got it. The class, the class struggle, you know, right? Like a, a specter is haunting the overthinking podcast, the specter of the, uh, the specter of the roadrunner. Well then release, release the coyote cut is what I say to Warner Brothers and to David Zasloff. Release the uh, Coyote versus Acme. Let us, let us all see it. Let the people decide, uh, you know, in, in our, our democracy. Democracy is under enough threat. Let's have, you know, let's have the, uh, let's have the, um, uh, the, our movie studios, our last bastions of democratic institution. I'm sorry. I'm joking too much. I, I probably shouldn't. This has been a fantastic, uh, uh, this has been a, a fantastic conversation of uh, of Roadrunner and Coyote, and and let me just say I'll put some some links to old cartoons in the uh, in the show notes. It's very uh, it's very worthwhile to go back and and watch them if you haven't seen them recently, as as I hadn't. It's uh, maybe the only good thing to come out of this uh, sad story with Coyote versus Acme is that it might lead some people to watch the uh, the Chuck Jones cartoons, which are uh, really really excellent little animated shorts there um all right that's that's the overthinking podcast thanks for listening ben thank you so much for joining us it's always a pleasure we didn't have you nearly often enough but we treasure every time that we do till next time friend beat me <laughs> and thanks very much to uh to pete and mark we'll see you next time on the overthinking podcast till then you can visit us on the web at overthinking where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably, probably, probably doesn't, doesn't, doesn't deserve. I'm hoping he does get one of those little letters in the mail that says he's part of a class action against the Acme Corporation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And he wins, but it's a pyrrhic victory because he gets like two dollars and fourteen cents uh, out of the out of the big settlement after everyone's taken their fees. And his attorney is just shown in the after credit scene, just eating this giant, delicious cooked bird. And you see. <laughs> <laughs>